There are many ways that history can be recorded and passed down. Some are more effective than others in regard to how much information and historical fact is preserved, while some ways record elements or moments from history without the full context. This season of the Book of Marshall, we learned history from a name etched in stone, from the legacy left on the trophy, and even the echoes of history from a school that is passed down through people sharing and reminiscing on different times. For this episode, we take a look at one more legacy and one more way that history can be preserved. For that, we look at the history and legacy of a man from Chapel Hill. That man is Grady Martin. If you are listening to this and thinking, I have never heard of Grady Martin, rest assured that you most certainly have heard Grady Martin. However, for Grady, we speculate he might have preferred that you didn't know his name. He seemed to go to great lengths to stay just outside of the spotlight. However, you have heard the sound of Grady's guitar, whether you know it or not. Before we tell this story, here are just a few quotes that the History Club gathered of other artists talking about Grady and his talent. Merle Haggard's called Grady's everybody's hero, saying that he understood music in a way no one else did. He also referred to any track Grady would record for any artist as a gift. Bob Moore, a famous session guitarist in Nashville, as well as Jerry Reed, both called Grady Nashville's greatest guitarist. Instrumentalist and Hall of Famer Harold Bradley hailed Grady Martin as the greatest studio musician and improviser in Nashville's history. Willie Nelson, Chris Christofferson, and Porter Wagner have multiple interviews where they speak highly of Martin's creative genius, even calling him a samurai guitar player. Still not convinced of his legacy? If I ask you to imagine the song, Pretty Woman, by Roy Orbison, go ahead, we will wait a few seconds. Was the first thing you thought of, of the famous guitar riff? Well, that was Grady Martin, and it's not even close to his greatest achievement in the music history. This is his story. The MCHS History Club presents The Book of Marshall. Marshall County, Tennessee is home to a rich and diverse history. Thank you for joining us on our season one finale as we investigate the past and preserve our stories for the future. The echoes of our past reverberate all the way through today. All that we have to do is listen. Welcome to the Book of Marshall. As we continue with our episode, you will begin to hear clips from an interview conducted by Robert K. Orman and Bob Pinson with Grady Martin on an unknown date. This interview was provided by the Country Music Hall of Fame, located in Nashville, Tennessee, and is used with their permission. We thank them for their support on this project and providing these resources. Information regarding their business hours and tickets can be found on their website. Grady Martin was born in Chapel Hill, Tennessee, on January 17, 1929. Grady was raised the youngest of four. His parents, Claude and Bessie, own a family farm. Like many families in the South during the Great Depression, they were poor, at least in terms of money. However, Grady's mother encouraged his interest in music. Our sources indicate that his mother likely played piano and could read music very well. When he was enjoying time with his horse, Trigger, Grady would listen to a homemade radio built from a cigar box. It seemed that after hearing the music of the original Grand Ole Opry as a small child, Grady decided that he was not interested in milking cows for the rest of his life. Grady's love of music would only continue to grow. Grady did not finish his education, instead leaving to pursue music full-time at age 15 in 1944. This set Grady Martin on a path that would literally change the sound of music as it was known at the time. That may seem like hyperbole, but stick around with us for his journey and you will see that in this instance. The hyperbole is true. In Grady's early career, 
he was actually featured as a fiddler. In fact, if you search for Hank Williams' classic, Hey Good Lookin', on YouTube, the official video listed for the performance features a 23-year-old Grady Martin playing the fiddle in a TV performance in 1952. Between the time of leaving and performing with Hank Williams, Grady honed his skill and craft playing for WLAC, one of the three radio stations, out of Nashville with Big Jeff Bess. I don't know exactly who it was. When I left home, I was 15 and a half years old. Right? And I stayed with Big Jeff for a year or two, about two years. And I went to the opera with the Bales Brothers and traveled with them for a while. And then I went to uh, work with Curly Fox and Texas Ruby. And that's where I started playing guitar. All we did, we had an early morning radio show and just played schoolhouses and anywhere we could, four or five dollars a night. It was a good night. <laughs> well, it was Grand Ole Opry. Mm -hmm. you know, they would come in and do the opera on Saturday, leave after the opera, be gone all week, have to make it back by next Saturday with no interstates, all two lanes. Mm -hmm. He also started to garner some interest from other artists in the music scene. He appeared on his first recording at the age of 17, playing the fiddle. As Grady built his career throughout the remainder of the 1940s, playing a twin guitar for Little Jimmy Dickens and the Country Boys. His rise culminated with his first appearance on a number one hit song, Chattanooga Shine Boy by Red Foley in 1950, featured a bluesy guitar solo from Grady Martin that cemented him as one of the top musicians of his time. It's also worth noting that Grady was already inventing and innovating at this time as well, helping develop a guitar that would sound like a dobro. No, it was just a guitar that sounded like a dobro. Jerry Kennedy and I went in together and bought, bought this thing together. I kept it five or ten years and we'd borrow it back and forth from each other. And finally I took it to Jerry, I said, hey, I've had this thing for ten years, man, it's your time. So he, as far as I know, he's still got it. <laughs> What did it sound like? like it's, it plays like a regular guitar, but it sounds like a slide dobro, you know, it has a dobro sound, the resonator. At some point in the 1950s, Grady Martin began working with the legendary Marty Robbins. This was also the era where Martin, who played in the legendary A-Team Studio Session Players in Nashville, flourished as a general in the recording studio. His creativity and understanding of musical theory, as well as the emotion that informs that theory, has few peers in this time or in the greater history of the music industry. Ready for another example of how you know Grady Martin? Think of the song El Paso, featured on radio, television, video games, commercials and many other forms of the media. The classical style guitar that opens the song and fills in the spaces between the lyrics. Grady Martin wrote that music and performed it on the record. The other Marty Robbins lick, if I think it's yours, I've always assumed it was you, is the little intro to El Paso. Yeah, I pray so. Is that just developed on the spur of the moment? Uh, first take or a second, I think it was first or second take. And, uh, somebody suggest to you that was the kind of feeling that they wanted or did you just look at the song and... No, we just uh, started doing it and uh, I just had to start it some way, so <laughs> I just did that, you know, hoping it would be okay. His career was still only just getting started. As the 1950s moved forward and even gave way to the 1960s, Grady Martin was one of the most in-demand session players for the stars of his day. Brenda Lee, Conway Twitty, Patsy Cline, Johnny Horton, even Elvis, they all demanded that Martin was the man in the studio for their various hits and records. 
Some of them would only work with Grady and the rest of A-Team. The sound of Nashville in the 1950s and 1960s was likely created on the strings of Grady Martin's guitar. We have included several scans of artifacts and articles covering the full range of Grady's career in our show notes. Click the link and enjoy some of this history provided by Mr. Martin's family, who still reside in the Marshall County area. By 1959, Grady had made a name for himself as one of the best, and no, this is also not his most famous contribution to the music industry either. It was around this time in the late 1950s that Grady Martin made a contribution that would change the sound of music going forward. He created a sound that was so different and unique that other artists immediately went to work to recreate this tone. Like many innovations in music, and outside of music, the discovery was a result of luck and circumstance, a happy accident. Microwaves, Velcro, Teflon, X-rays, insulin, penicillin, Nashville hot chicken, even chimichanga, all owe their creation to a happy accident. For Grady Martin, the innovation was due to faulty equipment which made the bass solo that he was playing on Marty Robbins' hit song, Don't Worry, come through with a fuzzy distortion. This became known as the fuzz tone. The recording section took place in Nashville either in 1959 or 1960. Martin was playing a bass guitar solo at around 120 seconds into the track. Grady played the riff and Marty Robbins producer Don Law and mixing artist Glenn Snotty listened to the track back and were very surprised at the distorted sound they played back. At first the goal of the men was to isolate the sound and find the source. As they continued to play it back, however, the musicians began to realize there was something special about the tone. There was a malfunction in the console, which caused the amplified sound to have a distortion. The clean, crisp sound normally associated with Marty Robbins and similar acts from his era was distorted with a gritty, heavy tone. At first, Marty Robbins was against using the track, but after some convincing from Grady and his producer, Marty relented and allowed the fuzz version of the song to be put on the record. A shock to everyone. They could hear it in the control room, but we didn't know what was happening out in the studio. But actually what happened, this board had 32 preamps, and one of the preamps went a little crazy. So when they played it back, everybody like fell out, you know, because it was so wild. I don't know. It just And it stayed that way for about a year. Yeah, we kept it that way for a year, and then it finally went all the way out. But in the meantime, Glenn Snotty, I used to come down on weekends and work with him on it. He was trying to get this condensed down into a little fuzz tone that you could plug in. And he got it pretty close. It wasn't exactly the same as the preamp. It was pretty close. So he went on and developed it, and they started selling Recounting the sound later, Marty Robbins said, No one could figure out the sound because it sounded like a saxophone. It sounded like a jet engine taken off. It had many different sounds. Upon returning home, Grady sat down in his studio and recorded a song he titled, appropriately, The Fuzz. This instrumental track featured Grady experimenting with the fuzz tone, crafting a haunting piece of music. MCHS teacher Levi Stanley was kind enough to record the riff of the song in an attempt to recreate this effect. Once the track was released, the race to copy the fuzz tone was on. Its influence could be heard all across the music of the 1960s and beyond. Sound engineer Glenn Snotty got to work trying to create a way to recreate this tone. It wasn't just country music either. Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones 
CCRs hit commotion. Punk, metal, grunge all use distortion effects to add the gritty, heavy sound that originated with the fuzz. Grady would continue to record with the renowned Nashville 18 through the remainder of the 1960s. However, Grady continued to make an impact for several more decades. But there was a side of Grady Martin that is much harder to find in research. We know Grady's professional accomplishments and his innovation is well documented, but who was Grady Martin? the man behind the myth and the music. Stick around after our sponsor break as we examine the answer to this question. Today's episode of The Book of Marshall is sponsored by MCHS alumni Anna Childress, Angela Wilsford, and Brent Edens. We are also sponsored by Dairy Queen of Lewisburg, located at 850 North Ellington Parkway in Lewisburg, Tennessee. At DQ, we flip for blizzards. Normally, the MCHS History Club takes this time to speak with a member of our municipality or an alumni of MCHS. For our final episode of Season 1, we hope you will excuse us for this week as we look within our own ranks for this week's Spotlight. This week, John Tavia Cross shined a spotlight on our History Club seniors. Hey guys, my name is Caden Mills. I'm a senior at MCHS. I plan on attending UT Southern in the fall, and I'm majoring in history. Hey, I'm Dre Drain. I'm a senior. plan on joining the Army this summer. Hey, this is the man, Matthew Martinez. I'll be attending UTC in the summer, and I'll be majoring in nursing and hopefully specializing in anesthesia. Hi, this is Gwen Ricabo. I'm a senior. I will be attending UT Chattanooga, majoring in nursing and hopefully be a travel nurse. This is Juliana Hansen. I'm a senior at MCHS and I'm planning on attending the University of Tennessee at Knoxville in the fall and majoring in business analytics. Hi, I'm Abby Perriman. I plan on attending East Tennessee State University and majoring in dental hygiene. Hi, I'm Ella Wilson. I'm going to the University of Tennessee to major in nursing. This is Mr. Hillis, and while I don't normally try to talk on the microphone on these episodes, I wanted to also acknowledge Sam Johnson. Uh, Sam's a senior in the History Club as well. He's going to go to Freed Hardman University to study Bible and history. He was out of town when we recorded these interviews. We are so thankful to each and every one of this year's seniors. They have helped establish a foundation for our history club that we look forward to building on for years to come. We would like to wish them the best as they move forward in their next phase of life and all of their future endeavors. Now we return to conclude the story of Grady Martin. As the recording process changed and the need for studio session musicians began to decline, Grady Martin would go on to join Willie Nelson's band for 16 years, touring around the world. Grady was also known to enjoy golf, participating in many celebrity golf tournaments over the years. Grady's musical legacy includes credits recording on the tracks Your Cheating Heart by Hank Williams Sr., Coal Miner's Daughter by Loretta Lynn, Big Iron by Marty Robbins, I'm Sorry by Brenda Lee, On the Road Again by Willie Nelson, Crazy and Heartaches by Patsy Cline, Johnny Horton's Battle of New Orleans, and many others. As part of the Nashville Brass, he may have even been part of the musicians who recorded the theme song to the old cartoon series Speed Racer. However, the man behind all of these accomplishments was quite different than you might expect. The MCHS History Club sat down with Julie Martin Azell and Grady Martin Jr., two of Grady Martin's children that still live here in Marshall County, to discuss the life and legacy of Grady Martin. This is the Marshall County History Club, and today we are interviewing 
Julie Ezell. Brady Martin Jr. The first question is: Do you feel that music was a large part of your household? In our childhood years, our living room—you know, growing up, you have—I don't know—some people. We had a formal living room that nobody, you know, that room where you have the nice furniture, but nobody's really supposed to sit on it. We had a great big reel-to-reel. They were tapes. Sometimes they would record day and night. We would be asleep, and we would wake up to. Always came home to play a finished product to see how it sounded away from the studio. We thought he was just being fun because I mean it would be loud, <laughs> glaring. We were hearing hits <laughs> before they were even out in our own home at five o'clock in the morning at, at a really young age. We didn't understand the importance of that, but that was our life. And because he spent so much time in the studio, a lot of times just him breaking away for an hour or two to take us to get a bite to eat, that might have been the only time we got to spend with him. So we, we all spent time in the studio while he was working. Like I said, it wasn't until he passed away that I realized I was in the studio the day that Conway Twitty and his daughter recorded the song Joni. Joni was his daughter's name, and they have a song that they did together. I was just there hanging out with my dad. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know this was important. <laughs> did any of you or your other siblings ever get interested in music yourselves, or was it mostly just like your dad's thing? No. We have two brothers, sadly they both passed away, who had great talent. Our brother, Joe, and our youngest sibling, Tal, both played in music. We, growing up, always had garage bands and neighborhood groupies that hung out with garage bands. Our mother was fine with having a basement that was loud and full of kids. As they grew older, we all traveled around. We teased that Grady was the road manager for the bands because you always traveled with them. He and I don't play music, per se. We all took lessons. I took piano. I played the violin in middle school. But other than that, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. We have an older sister that lives in Dallas that is an excellent pianist. There are two younger half-brothers that also play music still. I have a hard time playing radio. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel that his mindset towards music was carried out in other aspects of his life? Like Mr. Hillis was saying earlier, how he never liked to have the spotlight. Did you feel like he was like that in his everyday life as well? Yes, absolutely. When he came home from music, traveling on a bus, living out of hotels, concerts, and different cities, and he really wanted to step away from that. Although in our growing up years, he did participate with those that were into music, my two brothers. I know there was a Stevie Wonder song one day, and this just stands out in my mind. I may have been in my teens, and my dad was working with my brother. Um, He was playing that song, and he took the guitar, and I don't know if y'all have ever listened to that song, Very Superstitious. There's an intro with the guitar. When, When our dad played it, that intro, we just all started giggling because we knew it sounded better than the recorded version that Stevie Wonder had done. So although he did work with the kids that were interested in music, when he came home, he wanted to do the things that he loved, fishing, hunting. He and Grady Jr. shared that love. That was the time when he wanted to forget about music and enjoy being with family. I have uh, another question. Did he um, write his 
own music or what, did he play just play other people's music? It's like did he write the um, the like melodies and stuff? Yes, he wrote music, he wrote songs. I think there's a story out there where he participated in the writing of Big Bad John, which was a a big hit for Jimmy Dean. I've always had a question ever since I've uh, been researching Grady Martin, and it's about one of his number one hits. I'm pretty sure it's called Chattanooga Shoeshine Boy. Now I was just, I heard, I think I listened to the song, and I just wonder what do y'all think about the song? Uh, that was Red Foley. He did travel with Red Foley. Um, and I think a lot of their travels, they did what most artists do. They do write music together. Um, so that's entirely possible. I like all the heeing and hawing that goes on <laughs> with some of that older music. I think it's cool. I think newer artists have tried to somewhat bring some of that stuff back into mainstream music. And so that kind of tickles me because I'm like, most people would listen to some of that music from back then and go, oh gosh, just a bunch of whining. But it's actually pretty cool. It's making its way, some of the old music is making its way back into modern music. How would you describe the importance of Marshall County in your family? Like, why would you say that y'all have stayed here after so long? Funny story. We we all grew up in Nashville. Our whole family did. Before our dad retired, he bought the farm at a station in the Laws Hill community that was Charlie Fowler's farm. That was just down the street from where his original home place was. When my daughter started kindergarten, we were scared to death for her to go to school in Nashville because we didn't know where she'd wind up being zoned. And my dad was like, I've just bought this farm. Y'all come live in this farmhouse because he was still traveling in on the road hadn't retired yet there'd be nothing better than to put your kids in school where I went to school so that's how we came to Marshall County was through him he knew when he bought it it was going to be his place to retire that's how we came to Marshall County and we love it yeah I came a little bit later when he retired I cleaned out two houses full of stuff and brought them down here actually kicked them out (laughs) (laughs) where they had cows he loved farming. He loved the, the idea of farming. Where their original home place was, he had a brother that owned it. That brother actually lived in Gallatin, but came out every week and did farming stuff. And so they had tractors and cows, and Grady came and took care of the farm, managed all the cattle. And Did your dad's parents, so your grandparents, did they also live in Marshall County? They did, unfortunately. They were both deceased, um, so we didn't ever really get the opportunity to get to know them. He had a sister that lived here in Lewisburg, Lois Martin, who was a native of Marshall County. She worked in one of the factories up until she retired. Our dad, but even before he retired, he had his sister living out here that he would visit, you know, when he could. She was his biggest fan. When we cleaned out her house... She saved every newspaper article that mentioned his name. Every time a top ten that they would put in the newspapers that had anything to do with him playing in it, she saved them. We read a lot of information about your father's musical career, but less of his personal life. 
Do you feel like there's anything that people don't know that they should? Well, he was very well versed in the Bible. I think I spoke already a little bit about some of his loves, fishing, hunting. He and my brothers went on a lot of excursions. He loved farming and doing things outdoors. He loved having family around, gathered at holidays, Fourth of Julys, and he loved family gathering. I remember before he, right before he passed away, he said people don't gather like they used to back in the day. And he was telling me he had an aunt that lived in Rally Hill. And they used to load up on Friday, take a bunch of quilts, and all the kids would go spend the night at one of the relatives' house. The adults would play cards. The kids would play outside. He said people just don't gather like they used to. Those were the things that he loved. He loved having his family close, and I think that's what he intended for the farm to be for us. I think fishing and hunting was his escape from, uh, you know, music. the music. Mm-hmm. And crowds. Of people. He got so well known that, that it's like so many people getting getting at him, you know, everywhere he went. Just to get away was like, gets his head back right. I feel like that would be overwhelming because like when I was reading about him, I saw like he was just around like so many like famous people all the time. And I feel like if you were the type of person to enjoy like that lifestyle, it would kind of get to your head. And he was in the industry for so long. Yeah. And I feel like the reason why maybe he like lasted so long is because he didn't get like, you know, pulled into all the bad things. When uh, they inducted him into the Hall of Fame, Brenda Lee had the sheriff come find me. I was sitting <laughs> on the Because it was important to her. They wanted to make sure I was there. I mean. She wanted to tell him herself. I was sitting on the front porch, you know, and the police cars pulled up. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I thought I did something wrong. It's pretty wild how they found me. Um, I have a question. So obviously he was associated with many celebrities. Did you come into contact with any of them as well or any of the other family members? Yes. <laughs> you know, each child, um, each one of his children could probably give you a different story of an encounter or something. The one that strikes me, I always had a love for Merle Haggard. He, w- he would pull his bus up to the farm. And then I would hear about it from the neighbors later. And then I would be mad at him. Um, because being a daughter, um, my dad did a really good job of keeping the girls away from that industry. That was for protection. Yeah. Um, it wasn't because he didn't want me to meet Merle Haggard, but he was protecting. The guys spent more time actually on the road with him. And I went to the studio I went and met him at the hotel, got to hang out with Willie. We we all have backstage experiences. Mine were more like county fairs and, you know, because he, uh, the, along with that industry, there are also bad things that go on with regard to drugs, alcohol, and things of that nature. And any father would want to protect his child from being exposed to that as best he could. He did a really good job of that, I suppose. Grady probably has people that he hung out with. I'm sure you hung out with Willie and crew. And biggest thing I can remember is I was probably nine or ten years old, and I'm in the basement of Studio B because I was too loud to be upstairs where they were recording. <laughs> 
And I was down there playing ping pong with my, by myself. Elvis walked in, and he came down there, and we played ping pong. That's, I didn't know who he was. I, mean, <laughs> I was just a kid, but I, he was playing ping pong, but he beat me. <laughs> I do remember that. I heard a story about Elvis um, after our dad passed away. Somebody said that when they would work day and night, he he would be getting home maybe at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, going to sleep for the first time, uh, trying to make deadlines for getting songs recorded or whatever. And Elvis apparently liked to record in the in the night in the wee hours of the morning. He called our dad. Apparently, our dad had not slept for a few days, and he told him no and hung up on him. Everyone was shocked that Grady Martin hung up on Elvis Presley. Those producers back in those days were... They wanted you to make recordings of three songs a day, so that's that's hard to do. Uh, I read one thing, and it was like... I can't remember exactly how he did it, but it was basically talking about how he was talking to one of the producers one time, and he, like... You know how nowadays they can, like, layer songs to kind of give them, like, this playback thing? And Grady Martin, he wanted to do that. and But obviously they didn't have the technology that we have now. And they literally, like, they layered different, like, records and, like, physically spliced them onto each other. And they were, like, the first people to ever do that. Yeah. Which I thought that was interesting because I've never, like, I hear so much about the fuzz tone. But I thought that was a, a really cool idea, too. They were way before their time, weren't they? Yeah. It's yeah, like if you think about it. and And sadly, you know... I wished that each one of us could have spent more time talking to him about things, but I think he just wanted freedom from that when he was with us. Now I rely on other people telling stories, and it's just great (laughs) to hear stories that I knew nothing of until he passed away, how important he was to the industry. And so for that, I'm really proud. When you contacted me, I was so proud. I'm going to get a little emotional. I was proud of y'all for taking an interest and documenting history uh, for someone that probably a lot of Marshall County probably doesn't know who he is. And he's buried right, right here in Marshall County. Well, I feel like it's because he was, like, so, like, we were talking about before with his interview, like, I really, I've genuinely never heard, like, someone, like, I, he could be a celebrity, like, I would consider him a celebrity, uh, yeah. and, like, he just, like, it's like he was completely unaware, like, of his importance, like you yeah. said, so I feel like the reason why most people aren't aware is because, like, he, like, had to try to make himself Yeah, hidden. this was, this was his, his escape, and yeah. it was home to him. He did a pretty good job of escaping. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, I'm just really proud of each and every one of you for taking an interest. And y'all have obviously done a lot of legwork, and um, that really makes me proud. I don't want to get off topic here, but it's something that's been bothering me a long time. Ever since I heard it, it was the fuss tone. Like, not bothering yeah. me in a bad way, but I've, I've listened to music my whole life, and I've just never been so mesmerized by sound. Yeah. I think I listened to uh, Don't Worry. 20 times really I, like in a row without it is stopping cool. it was a like it is cool I, I just i've just never heard anything like it it was a a tube that blew in the speaker or whatever and the sound of that and there's youtube videos apparently where they've recreated it they've recreated that sound or they say they've duplicated it i don't know if it sounds identical probably not nothing probably is identical to the raw version of that happening and it happened by accident yeah. they've <laughs> but tried it's definitely Definitely cool. Like that's how the the fuzz pedal. I'm pretty sure. 
Yeah. Maybe he worked with the creator of the fuzz pedal. Yeah, they've got another thing, the Echo. Echoplex, a lot of the rock and roll people using it, and the fuzz, to this day. That was just another accident. I read something where it says the Beatles even took inspiration from that type of style of play. He recorded, you know, there's outside of genres of country music. Well, he did soundtracks in between him being on the road. He did Loretta Lynn's soundtrack for the movie. Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. He is the guitar in that beautiful song. He's got a beautiful solo in Pretty Women. Yeah, that's him. I feel like the guitar part is the best part of that song. Yeah, it is. is. (laughs) And and that's the thing that y'all probably, if you sat and listened to just songs that he is in, he has a very distinct sound. And when we went to that award ceremony that Willie Nelson hosted back in the 80s, Willie said when he was doing the the roast, he said, I've tried to rip him off for years and I just can't do it. <laughs> Nobody can make his sound. Nobody can do, his chords are distinct and pronounced and it's an artistry thing. I've had a question I've, I've just, I've been thinking for a long time and the question is, what is his legacy to you? We're all really proud of him. He was not a public person. Uh, as you know, um, but we, he, he wouldn't care anything about all of this, but I know he's smiling down, proud that, that we've gotten an opportunity to learn about his career and to be proud of him. We're, we're all very, very proud of what he accomplished. He probably made a lot of sacrifices. I remember he wasn't there for my graduation, and that kind of broke my heart as a little girl. I was thinking, who does that? You just don't show up. But he was in demand. Uh, he was on the road, you know, and he just couldn't be there. He showed up when he could. He did cut a pretty wide path, for sure. Good, good. <laughs> That's a good one, Bubba. I've always called him Bubba. He's He is Grady Jr., but... From the time little, he's been Bubba in our house. And what do you think? Like, was his driving factor for like his passion for music? Like, what do you think motivated him to do it for so long? Do you think it was just like the music in general? Well, I know he came from a musical family. Both his parents. I know he had a sister that played the piano. He had two brothers that also played guitar. So that's just what he grew up knowing. And I think he probably. Knew at a very young age he was pretty good at it. He completed the ninth grade of school and was asked to go to Nashville. Had to get permission from his parents to move in with a relative so that he could start playing. That's when he was um, doing road shows. Most people who are passionate and know that they're good at something, that's just what they chase. He had musical beginnings. I think that is so beautiful when people like really can dedicate like their entire life to something like and yeah. like you can tell that he didn't do it to like be famous like it just seems like like a pure like type yeah. of thing like pure love of music. It. Yeah. I think that's so cool. The reality is in a career that spans 6 decades there's just no way to cover Grady Martin's entire career or his impact on the music industry on this platform. Not with just one episode at least. We hope the snapshot of his career and the insight into his life and who he is as a person as well as who he is as a father brings a little more understanding and attention to one of Marshall County's most accomplished residents. 
for many in the music industry, the goal is to make it. What does this mean? Well, it can actually vary quite a bit. Some are focused on hit records and songs. Some want awards and recognition. Others want to preserve their independence and artistry outside of the studio system. And many would like just to be able to make a living doing something that they would love and are passionate for. For those of us not in the industry, we think of the musician or singer on the stage, the lights out, save for one, the spotlight. My name is Jessica. I'm Grady Martin's granddaughter. My mother is Julie Ezel, daughter of Grady Martin, or who I simply knew as Granddad. When I think back on my memories of my granddad, they very rarely include anything music related. The majority of my memories took place on the farm on Anastation Road in Laws Hill, Tennessee. This is where my granddad ended up spending his retirement years. My parents, little brother and myself, actually lived there twice. Once when we first moved to Tennessee when I was five and a second time when I was around 15 years old and we were building our house in Chapel Hill. The farm will always be a special place to me. I did all the typical things that you could do on a farm. Fished in the pond. I remember getting into the storm cellar and exploring, riding four-wheelers and go-karts, uh, picking blackberries until my fingers were literally black. And I really vividly remember loving to sit in the porch swing that was on the big wraparound porch at the farm. I never saw my granddad play any type of live music, but that porch was one of the first places that I, you know, remember hearing real live music as a young child. Um, we would host Fourth of July parties, family gatherings, and my Uncle Tal, Uncle Joe, um, they had a good friend Mitch, and they had a little band for a while, and, you know, other friends that they played with, just countless hours of music played on that front porch uh, will always be something that I remember, and it's special to me. And even to this day, it's probably some of the best live music I've ever heard. One memory I have that is kind of funny to me is I remember being around 12-ish, I can't remember exactly, um, but my mom had told us, uh, my brother and I, that she was going to take us and we were going to meet some of my granddad's friends at the golf course at Henry Horton State Park. Um, he had entered and was playing in a golf tournament there. I remember walking in the parking lot and we were walking towards this huge tour bus and I'd never been on anything bigger than a school bus, so I had no idea what to expect. Um, of course, the first thing I saw when I came up the stairs was my granddad. He stood up and uh, what he was a very big man and I remember hearing people later on describe him as a bear of a man. So that's kind of exactly what I saw from a child perspective. Right beside him, I remember seeing this very thin, small, bearded, long hair. His hair was in braids. Of course, back then I considered him to be a very old man. He was wearing a bandana. He had a huge smile, but I just, you know, kind of went past that and ran right past him, gave my granddad a big hug. I remember the adults kind of started the whole introductions of who was who, but I was already checked out. I was busy being all over the bus. Um, I'd never seen anything like that. There was a kitchen, a bedroom, living room. I remember hearing guitars playing from the back of the bus. I think this was, for me, the first realization that I had of my granddad's kind of big into this music thing. Um, now, at 40 years old, as I'm telling you this, um, I can tell you that it was obviously Willie Nelson's tour bus that I was on, roaming around. That was the only time, I guess you could say, I met him, quotations, but I didn't actually meet him. Um, but I do know I roamed his bus freely. Uh, I was nowhere concerned with him or anybody that played an instrument. I was just infatuated with this tour bus. One of the only conversations that I really remember having with my granddad that involved him bringing up music was when I told him that I had decided I was going to sign a basketball scholarship with Austin Peay State University. Basketball had been a pretty big topic for us. We discussed it regularly when I visited the farm. He really liked to hear all about it. My teammates, who was looking at me, who I was looking at. He, he definitely knew my goal was to play college basketball 
somewhere. One of the last really big conversations I remember having with my granddad was uh, I remember telling him that I had decided on a college where I was going to go to and I was going to sign a college basketball scholarship with Austin P. Basketball, you know, had already been something that we discussed quite a bit and he knew that I wanted to play on some realm of college basketball. So I remember sitting down and discussing that with him and telling him that this is where, you know, I wanted to go. He didn't get to come to a lot of games and watch me play physically. My last two years, he really mainly just listened to the games on the radio. He had some health conditions that prevented him from coming, but he was definitely listening to every single game. We were kind of discussing the whole college thing and, you know, what I would be getting into and he started to tell me how it was going to be really different, you know, going from high school basketball transitioning into college, you know, where I was used to being one of the better players on my team, that I was going to be walking into a team that already had a bunch of me's, a team that already had a bunch of Jessica Ezels, and they were going to be better me's. And he said, not only are there going to be better use, there's going to be even better use. He started to explain that I would probably have a different role on this team. Not to say that you have to stay in this role forever, but that this was going to be something that was different and I really wasn't used to. I remember he had this huge smile on his face and we were talking about this and um, he just, he looked at me and he said, I love making someone else sound good. I could tell when he said that in that moment, he truly meant it. He was so passionate about making someone else sound good. Um, Whatever singer that he was recording with, as far as playing, he truly to his core wanted to make that singer sound good. He took a lot of pride in that. Um, he, he tried to explain it to me. He said, you know, the singer sometimes is portrayed as the star of the team, but they're no different than the guitarist, the pianist, or what I, what somebody would say, the rebounder on a basketball team. You know, he, I remember him telling me, you all ultimately want the same outcome. Uh, we talked more about college, and the best part of that conversation was I remember him leaning over towards the end. You know, we were wrapping up the whole going to college thing, the do's and the don'ts, and, and he leaned over and he said, um, Jess, nothing good ever comes after 2 a.m. And he kind of giggled, and, and then he whispered, he said, unless Elvis calls. When Elvis calls, you answer the phone, which at that time I thought that was the weirdest thing he'd ever said. (laughs) But now thinking back, I can only imagine the conversations that he had with Elvis Presley at 2 a.m. I've been asked by some of my close friends before if if I wish, looking back, that I kind of knew back then what I know now as far as the music side goes of my granddad. And it's pretty simple for me. The answer will always be no. I remember the last few times, you know, visiting the farm and and seeing him before I left for college and just rounding the corner to his bedroom and seeing that blue rocking chair and Bible in his hands. Sermons would always be blasting on the television. Um, Those are the memories that will always be special to me um, because every time I rounded that corner, he was ready to dive into conversations about my life and my plans and college and things like that. He passed away over Christmas break of my friend freshman year of college and I remember going home for the visitation and funeral and kind of casually walking around the funeral home looking at all the flowers and who they were from and I started seeing you know names like Loretta Lynn, George Jones and family, Brenda Lee. I was shocked but for me that's kind of when my research of Grady Martin you know the music side that's when it started for me. I couldn't believe how many songs I had sang before you know riding down back roads with friends or sitting at bonfires that he was already playing in. Uh, To this day my favorite song of his will always be Seven Spanish Angels Um, but it was in though it was in that moment um, you know looking at all those cards that I realized the Elvis comment that he'd made all those months before, how special that was and how it made absolutely complete sense. You know, Chet once told me that because he was a solo, I mean, a, a performer himself, that a lot of times he would save his best lick, licks for his own records kind of thing. Did you mean? I never thought like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Chet's a star. I'm 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 not a star, you know. But my thinking uh, all the time I'm in the studio is an artist singing a song. You gotta stay out of their way. Try to do something that's not gonna run over them, you know. That that's the way that goes really when you're recording. The star shines in the light while the people stand and cheer, taking in the ovation that validates their work. However, for Chapel Hill's Grady Martin, a country music Hall of Fame guitarist, music was never about the spotlight. It was about making those around him sound their best. It was about making the stars shine. It was about innovation. It was about family. Grady Martin invented a sound that spread all throughout the music industry and across multiple genres. All the while, Grady was never the man in the center of the spotlight. Often, he wasn't even the man on the edge of the spotlight. However, his contributions to the songs that he recorded on often set them apart. His guitar defining the sound and being just as memorable as the lyrics themselves. Normally, we conclude our research and the episode with this is their story. For Grady, we would like to give him a different send-off, something he has long deserved. For Grady Martin, this is the spotlight. The Book of Marshall, Chapter 4, The Tone Setter, researched and written by Julie Hansen, Dre Drain, Matthew Martinez, Gwen Ricabo, and Travis Hillis. Hosted by Gwen Ricabo, Dre Drain, Matthew Martinez. Senior interviews by John Tavia Cross. This podcast was executive produced by two-time MCHS lip sync battle champion Travis Hillis. Theme song for The Book of Marshall, Clouds, by Jay Hill. His music is available on all streaming platforms. Additional music use royalty-free any errors made in the research of this episode are purely made in good faith. Sources are provided in the episode script. We would like to thank Linda Potts and the Marshall County Historical Society for their support. Finally, we would like to thank you for listening. We would invite you to subscribe for free on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will alert you anytime we release a new episode. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review and tell all your friends. We hope you enjoyed season one of The Book of Marshall. Keep your eyes open for our bonus episode featuring the entirety of the 1984 Tiger Roundtable discussion. And we hope you join us back next year for season two of The Book of Marshall.